as we come low to read, share and hear the word of the prophecy. We pray that Lord you lead us you keep us, Lord, away from the spirit of error. Help us, Lord, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will share in the way you want us to share. Bless the ears and bless the heart. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Today, the book of Revelation, Purpose and Key Message. The book of Revelation, Purpose and Key Message. We'll be having about four readings, but our main reading will be Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 to 6. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 to 6. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servant things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John to the servant, we can stop there. We can stop at verse 4. That's okay. So, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servant things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Now, this is a sub-topic of a broader series we will be sharing over the coming weeks or months as the Lord leads that will be called title A Missing Dimension and it will take a number of weeks on that inspired by the letters to the seven churches each church had a missing dimension by God's grace, we will share that and then make applications to our own lives as the Lord wants to touch on the spiritual 
missing dimension in our own lives. Yes, we might have joy and commendation from the Lord about the service, the way we live, the way we worship him, all that. But at the same time, God might have, might see, may see in us what I call a missing dimension. To the seven churches, there's always something like, I know this. I know you are good at this, but I have this against you. So the broader topic would be a missing dimension or I have this against you. But that's not for now. So what we see today should be understood in that broader context. So this is an introduction to that broader because we cannot just jump to seven churches without setting the stage. Because you see, whenever you approach the book of Revelation, whenever you share on the book of Revelation, the first thing that comes in mind of people is fear, intimidation, fear for contradiction, because of the great controversy regarding, you know, the differing and contradicting view, etc. Therefore, people conclude that it's safe and easy just to ignore it. Why yet God says, blessed he who read this and those who hear. That sounds to me that it's a public reading and a public hearing. So we are encouraged, and the Bible attached a promise to that. Blessed he who read and those who hear. So there is a special promise to sharing the word of this prophecy. You see, it's a different perspective from God as far as God is concerned. The way he sees this book as opposed to the view of our common enemy who wants to do what? Who wants to cover to put a veil on this book. Yet, it's called revelation. Revelation means unveiling. The Lord has unveiled for us, but the enemy wants to put a cloud, confusion, in the very book that sustains us, that gives us, I would say, assurance and boldness as we await from heaven the blessed appearing of Jesus Christ and the consummation of all things and the new earth and the new heaven. It is called revelation that is uncovered. It's been uncovered for us. Yet we are led to believe that it's so complicated and so contradictory and so controversial that we should avoid it. And then we leave a broad way, a, 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 a high way for the deceivers to take control of the interpretation of it. I remember a very good sister when I was at Bridge Lane uh, working under uh, Tony Pierce. And uh, that lady came to me one day and she said, I, I love the blessed hope that we see in the book of Revelation, but 
I'm afraid. I don't like the idea of being having eyes all over the place. I'm, 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 I don't like that idea. I myself, when I was still a student in Africa, I was not a believer yet, but I set myself to read, see the blue New Testament of the Gideons, to read the 22 chapters of Revelation, you know, and I read one afternoon, and then I went to have a nap, and I had a big nightmare, scary. You know, all the thing about the beast, everything is coming back to me, etc. Do you know why? This book here is written for the servant of Christ. When they look into it, they're not scared. They see the final victory of the lamb and the lion. When the enemy and the haters of Christ look into this, they're scared and they try to confuse, to twist, because they don't want to see, to envisage, even to think about the final defeat. We're not afraid about the prospect of going to hell because we've been redeemed. And he who has saved us is faithful to keep us to the end. The book of Revelation. Purpose and key message. Let me start with a question. If you had all the power at your disposal to to enforce your decision or your resolution, that's another way of saying, if you were God and you've given this, it's called revelation, and your servant ignore or despise this critical information, what would you do? What would you think? What do you think the Lord think about the church when he's given this revelation? And we turn the whole thing into petty argument and conflict. The minute you speak about revelation, what comes in mind? Post, pre, mid, pre, 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 post, pre. Those words are not even in the Bible. Yet people are fighting to win an argument. What do you think God thinks about that? For such critical information is given to the church. To do what? To show us things that must take place shortly. Because of what? Because the time is near. This is critical information as far as God is concerned. This is not about winning an argument. Do you know what? You can read the book of Revelation by yourself. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, prayerfully, faithfully, obediently, without any book on this controversy, and you will be, still be edified. And God can still speak to you. If we want, if we find it, if we feel powerful, you know, to waste our time into those controversies and win an argument, etc., then that's fine. 
But that's not the purpose of this book. The most attacked, undermined and attacked and confused books in the Bible, as you know, is Genesis because of the origin of man. Because if Genesis is true and Adam and Eve are real human beings and our first ancestors, then the fall is true, then the need for a savior is necessary, then salvation is real, then God is true, and everyone else is a liar. So you can begin to understand why the enemy is working so hard with so many humanistic philosophy and so-called science to confuse people so that people will not learn the reality of God's plan. By telling people that uh, you evolved from monkeys, well, not me, certainly. And you, I guess. Well, you might be offended. Why is he saying, I guess? He should just confirm. No, so, some of us believe in theistic evolution. So I can't just say, everybody. Some people believe in theistic evolution. God might have used, you know, evolution at some point. You know, the gap theory between verse 1 and verse 2, etc. So I can't take responsibility to say we all came from Adam. <laughs> Even though I know that is true, everyone must be convinced and speak for himself. But all those things are designed in order to undermine God's plan for salvation. The other book that is attacked and confused and undermined is the book of Revelation. The confusion has never been so great and ever more growing in our days. People don't care about what Jesus is. They just want to win an argument. Everyone is pushing his agenda. Everyone wants to be right. And the key message and the purpose of the book is completely ignored. Well, the enemy knows that this book foretells his dramatic ending. And those who believe in him. Because he wants to draw people to him, the Bible says, because he knows he only has a very short time left. So he wants to draw the maximum with him in hell. Therefore, he's working tirelessly to undermine the key message and purpose of this book. And we believers we become intimidated and scared, even ashamed and afraid of contradiction and objection. Well, Jesus Christ himself was teaching. There were objection and contradiction. Still, we need to teach the Bible. The book is given to be taught. 
I've mentioned the book of Genesis and Revelation, but there is another book that is really, really attacked and undermined in a very subtle way. That is the book of Hebrews. Do you know why? Because the book of Hebrews, the key message is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. You find words such as best, better, higher. Those are the words you find there. Jesus Christ. And because of the promotion of the a worldly priesthood in every world religion and cult, even if they borrow the name of Jesus Christ, they borrow to, to associate with their practices, anti-biblical practices, because of the prestige of the name of Jesus. But they want to discount Jesus Christ. The Bible calls that an other Jesus. It's not the Jesus we see in the book of Revelation. That's why they are not quite happy with the book of Hebrews. Because in Hebrew, you see our high priest, Jesus Christ. Perfect sacrifice, perfect high priest, Jesus Christ. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to reveal the reality of Jesus Christ and his eternal plan to his servants. Now, when you hear this, one might think the Revelation, four characters are involved in this, involved. God the Father, Give the revelation of Jesus to Jesus himself. Jesus Christ gives it to his angel. The angel gives it to John, the apostle John, and the apostle John sends to the servant of God. Now, one may think, oh, it's to the servant of God, not to me. We are all servant of God. All we are servant of God. The Lord has imparted to each one of us Ministries, gifts, spiritual qualifications, etc. For what? For the equipping of the saints and the edification of the church. We'll come back to that in a minute. In that sense, we are all servants of God in various capacities, as the Lord in part. In that sense, this book and everything that is written in this book concerns each one of us. An understanding of this revelation helps the servant of the Most High to live and discern things in the light of the same revelation. Interpreters may differ on the meaning of pictures and events described in the book of Revelation, but each reader is confronted with the vision of the unveiled majesty of Jesus Christ, undeniably. From whatever perspective you look at it, you can't escape the majesty and the glory, the fullness of the glory of Jesus Christ in this book. In this book, we see his glory, his power, 
his judgment, his ultimate victory over evil. However we choose to interpret this book, there can be no doubt that Jesus Christ's identity is fully unveiled or revealed. Like other scriptures, the book of Revelation is also called Words of Prophecy. And as such, it is also subject to the same rule of interpretation as the rest of the Bible. That is, no private interpretation. As stated in 2 Peter 1, 19-21. Though spiritual discernment, sensitivity, care, and wisdom are needed in approaching all scriptures, we should not avoid or feel intimidated to read or study the book of Revelation. The more we prayerfully and obediently read it, the more we will find what we need to live and await the Lord earnestly. In fact, in Revelation 1.3, there is a promise of blessing for he who read. I've said that already. I can skip that. However, the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ and the key message cannot be neither mistaken or understated when reading the book of Revelation. There's no way. That's the key message. The person of Jesus Christ, his identity, and his plan fully revealed to us. We don't need psychic power. We don't need astrology. We don't need to read horoscopes. It's just there. And the Holy Spirit ascertain, settles us in these things about the future. We know the future. In this introduction to the book of Revelation, the purpose is to focus on the person of our Lord Jesus and his key message as described in this book. Detailed study of differing, differing prophetic interpretation is beyond the scope and the goal of this teaching, at least for now. Though a summary of prophetic systems will be succinctly presented to you. At least the big ones, the main ones, because there are so many of them. Say the main, you know, prophetic systems. Now, the main ones, we will try at some point to, to have some visual aid if it works. I understand that the slides were very busy, so the characters are very small, so we may not profit from them, but we will try. Uh, let me just summarize here first before we try that. There are three major prophetic system of interpretation of the book of Revelation and all the prophecies of the Bible. I'm not putting them in order of preference. I'm just saying them. Premillennialism. You see, these are the things that really confuse and make people really nervous. It's all this pre-post me, etc. When we hear that, oh, 
pre-millennialists. Ah, okay. Thank you, brother. Excuse me. Okay, that's fine. Can you see something? Oh, that's good. Good. Thank you very much, brother. Oh, you've done some work on it already. Thank you. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. <laughs> it was too small. Okay. So, pre-millennialists, in this view, in this system of interpretation of prophecy, Christ will return to introduce his reign of 1,000 years. Now, millennialists, pre-millennialists, post-millennialists, the millennialist bit comes from the word millennium, which is 1,000 years, as mentioned in the book of Revelation chapter 19. 1,000th year when Jesus Christ reigned, when Satan is bound for 1,000th year, and that, that's where the, the idea comes from. So all these three schools, pre-millennialists, post-millennialists, a-millennialists, they all take the idea of 1,000th year from the book of Revelation 19. Now, pre-millennialists believe that Christ will return and will himself introduce his reign for 1,000th year. Post-millennialism, in this view, Christ is establishing his kingdom and will return after the gospel has changed the society. Christ is actually establishing his kingdom. The gospel is key to changing, not only bringing salvation of individuals, but salvation of society and purifying the society. And then amillennialism. In this view, all the prophecies are symbolic, allegorical, and are not to be taken literally. Evil in the world will continue until the final judgment. judgment. Now, the key to, to these differing views and controversy, the key element is are biblical prophetic passages to be taken literally or allegorically. I intentionally avoid saying spiritually. Because taking them literally doesn't mean it's not spiritual. So I'm comparing actual with allegory. That's the key thing. We read prophecies in the Bible. Is this a picture? Is this symbolic? Or is this to be taken literally? So that's the key issue in the whole controversy. <clears throat> okay, it's uh, got my aid, my own aid here since hard copy of that, since I cannot see what is in there. Okay, so there's been. Okay, I'm looking at the first slide. 
they've been, I would say, evolution or change in the way people interpret Bible prophecy. Not that the Bible itself has evolved. It's people who are looking, depending on what they see, the current situation, the world view, their own preferences sometimes, and that is changing. And it's been changed. Oh, thank you very much. That's, that's the one. For the early church, for the early church, and the apostolic father, by early church I mean the apostles, and then you have the apostolic fathers. The apostolic fathers, the word fathers, should not confuse us. We're not referring to Catholic priests because they are called father. No. Apostolic fathers were church leaders and thinkers who had been in contact either directly or indirectly with the apostles. Like Polycarp, who was the bishop of the church of Smyrna, who had been in contact with the apostle John and many others, either directly or indirectly. Those are called the apostolic fathers. Now, you might have heard me saying that just because the apostolic father says something, it doesn't make it, it doesn't validate what they're saying. Why am I saying that? Why? Because there were also people in the very apostolic days who were deceivers. Just because someone is saying, you know, I had been teaching, I taught in Galatia, well, that doesn't validate. That is true because Paul is wrestling with false teachers in the church of Gal Galatia. That's what I mean. So for the saying and the writing to be validated, they need to be tested, scrutinized, discerned in the light of the Bible. Then we can validate by the Holy Spirit. So just quoting Jerome, not this Jerome, I'm talking about a scholar. <laughs> not this Jerome, you know. Just because origin, just because Tertullian says something, doesn't validate automatically. They still need to be scrutinized and tested in the light of the Bible. So did the Bereans, even when the great apostle Paul himself taught. They checked the scriptures, whether what he was teaching was so. However, when the writing align with the Bible, then we can reliable use the wisdom and revelation God has given to them and the gift for edifying the church and to be equipped. Now, early church, apostles and apostolic fathers. For 300 years, the church did integrate the Old Testament and the New Testament prophecy. I'm not taking sides. I'm just saying there is strength in interpreting New Testament prophecy in the light of the Old Testament prophecy. Just this morning, Brother Ola was uh, reading for us from Isaiah 55. You know, he was first to come and drink, etc. You find that 
at the end in chapter 22 of Revelation. It's quoted. So it's safe. Might not be comfortable for everybody, but it's safe to understand the New Testament in the light of the Old Testament. The late Czech Missler used to say, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament unveiled. Revealed, unveiled, it's the same, thank you. So he saw an integration of the two, and there is safety. It's one document, it's the word of God. See, Ola, I'm going to quote you so much today, you know. Uh, in the book of Isaiah 53, when I first became a Christian, I used to call that the gospel according to Isaiah. He prophesied that Christ will be born from a virgin, from a young lady, and, 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 and the circumstance and the suffering and everything, and the way he will die and everything, just as confirmed in the gospel. So we can't ignore that. Think about this. When the Bereans were discerning and checking and scrutinizing Paul's teaching, the Bible wasn't read, written. The New Testament, I mean, wasn't written. How were they scrutinizing? Against what were they testing? Against the Old Testament. From which book was Peter teaching at Pentecost? Stephen. From where were they reminding people about God's plan for salvation, the journey of Israel, his relationship with Israel, the need for salvation, the prophets about Jesus coming? From which book? From the Old Testament. So we can't ignore the Old Testament. So these people here were safe in integrating Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecies. They took prophecy literally. If the Bible said Christ will come, they believed that he was coming. In the book of Zechariah saying that he will put his feet in the Mount of Oliver, certainly the rest, the rest of the body will be there as well. We cannot spiritualize that. Christ is coming bodily. The early church expected Christ to return. And they expected that his return will precede a time of blessing as prophesied in the Old Testament before the end of this age, this world as we know it. Now, let us navigate into the exciting part. Turbulent waters to the Reformation. To the Reformation. You see, in the early church, the apostle, even the apostolic fathers, they were so simple. They took things face, at face value. To the Reformation. A review of commentary on the book of Revelation shows a shift in understanding prophecy 
occurred after the early centuries. We are now in the fourth century. Things change. We are now around 390 AD. In the meantime, something has happened. You know, Constantine is now in authority in the church now. You know, he claimed the title of Pontifex Maximus, etc. You know, he's uh, uh, promoting a spiritual mixture of the church with paganism. By that time, everybody is uh, a Christian, hence the name Christendom. That's the reason why you see here in the West, you know, uh, the, the, the ministry of the pastor seems to be more important than other ministries. That's not the case in Asia. You have teachers in Asia. You have people living as teachers and being recognized as such. In the West, now, because of the idea of shepherd, because in the West, it was assumed under the Roman Empire that everyone was a Christian. So we just needed people to shepherd them. That's what has led to the prominence of one ministry over others. You don't see that in the Bible. Check out for yourself and tell me how many times you find even the name pastor itself. They are shepherds. They are shepherds. But that was because of the Christendom. Not the church, the Christendom in the Roman Empire. So you see, things begin to be complicated already in definitions, in concepts. And the church will be affected. You see, Constantine starts by declaring, you know, after war, I saw a sign, you know, in the sun like a cross, and I heard a voice saying to me, in this sign, you conquer, have victory. And then he came up with the idea of, in the name of the Father, and etc., because he saw the sign. And the sign of the cross became prominent in an in a idolatry way. Wow. Yet, God had a remnant who discerned that there was something not quite right. They wanted to stick to the word of God and to the lordship and headship of Jesus Christ. I think it was around 330 BC, I think, because the first edit was in 313. Okay, 330, I think. The same Constantine now changes. He became so furious because of the true believers, and start persecuting them and killing them. You see, when people resist the arbitrary, fakehood, deception, they should expect persecution. Can you imagine now that everyone has a baptism card, a card to prove that he's been baptized? It doesn't matter whether you believe or not. It doesn't matter whether you are a witch, astrologer, whatever you are. Just come and take baptism and have your card to prove that you are a Christian. Mixture. Mixture. I'm saying that so that we can begin to understand how things shift from a simple understanding of Bible prophecy to where we are today. 
and controversy. And who are responsible for that? I'm saying that again. A review of commentary on the book of Revelation shows a shift in understanding prophecy occurred after the early centuries. Written something there about me asking the question. Is scholasticism to blame or was this a consequence of a spiritual mixed marriage with paganism? Why the shift in understanding? Something that was so clear to everybody. Paul said, we'll not all die, but in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. Nous ne mourrons pas tous, mais tous nous serons changés en un clin d'œil. In the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. Nous les vivants, we who are alive, nous serons enlevés. We will be caught up, snatched away. How bad so? To meet God, Jesus in the air. They believe that even in their lifetime, Christ will come. They live in that expectancy. And that had a purifying effect on the way they lived. He who had this hope, he who had this hope in him purifies himself. The imminency of the coming of Christ should have a purifying effect on the way we live. It was so simple. How have you ended up into pre, post, mid, and confused, and even to the point that we are scared of the book itself? Would that be the Holy Spirit? Certainly now. You tell me, if those theories are contradicting themselves radically, it's possible that they may all be false, but they can't all be right. Because they are contradicting themselves. They can't all be right. What do we do? In the fourth century, that's the start of the drama. Events described in the book of Revelation were being spiritualized. Everything is allegorical now. Tychonius, a leader of the African church, I've put that in inverted comma, leader of African church, but we know it was in North Africa, where there was some sort of revival which was completely destroyed by Catholicism. I understand from history, Muhammad was used to do that work in North Africa, to destroy the remnant of the true church. So, Tychonius, a leader of the African church in North Africa, his allegorical approach of interpreting the book of Revelation was largely adopted in the 4th century. He's the one who really formalized and systematized it, and it was largely adopted. Later, 
this approach was used to justify the understanding of the papacy as a political power from revelation. Tychonius' work can no longer be found these days. But, surprisingly, many of his quotes can now be found and are now attributed to Augustine. Strange. That includes his original work on the city of God, which is now attributed. And Augustine takes credit of everything. But the original work has disappeared miraculously. Problems. Everywhere. Now, in the 12th century, a chronological division of Revelation was introduced. People systematized a chronology, the age of the Father, the age of the Son, the age of the Holy Spirit, which is our age here. Now, Reformation. During the Reformation, this chronological approach was fastened. The Antichrist, the beast, mentioned in Revelation 13, and the harlot mentioned in Revelation 17 and 18, were interpreted as respectively the papacy and Rome. Then the Catholic scholars responded. The Pope is not the Antichrist. The Antichrist is an individual who is yet to come in some future. Events describing the book of Revelation applied only to period before the fall of Rome in 476 A.D. In 2001, I attended a conference in St. Albans. And the president of the global movement of development, we had a chat in the corridor with him. And he said to me that I was wrong because everything described in the book of Revelation had been fulfilled at the fall of the Roman Empire. So you see, they are very serious. So don't think that if you go to people talking about these things, Everybody will say, yeah, blessed hope. No, you will meet objection. You will be confronted. That's the reason why we need to study. It is our responsibility to share these things, to grow in these things, to equip the saints to edify the church and to the work of the ministry. That we should not be like children, carried away about by every wind of doctrine, tossed to and fro by cunning people. Okay. Let's come back to today now. We've seen the early church, we've seen the period before Reformation, we've seen the Reformation. Now today. That's where the drama comes in. Because we are concerned is today, we're living today. We sleep and we wake up with pre-post-A. There are three dominant prophetic systems today which developed in Protestantism out of conflict that took place during Reformation. 
you're right, I'm wrong, you're right, I'm And we can see the results today in the church. Pre-millennialism. This view renewed in the 19th century by the Plymouth Brethren. It integrates the Old Testament and New Testament prophecy, which is also understood literally. Seems to me to be closer to the, what the early church believed in. This interpretation sees a future appearance of the Antichrist, a time of great tribulation, the return of Jesus Christ to earth, a thousand-year rule of peace, a final rebellion of, of the creation, and then an eternity spent in a freshly created and sinless universe. That pre-millennialism. Post-millennialism. Post-millennialists foresee a gradual growth in godliness as the gospel is preached throughout the world. They see Jesus as establishing a new and powerful expression of God's eternal kingdom. In this view, the first coming of Jesus Christ is central to everything because it inaugurates through the gospel, the, the, the knowledge of his name and his message is inaugurating that work of God establishing his kingdom and, and working to purify uh, society. So they see Jesus as establishing a new and powerful expression of God's eternal kingdom. In this view, most people will become Christians and society will be purified. The gospel is more than the power of God unto man's salvation, but it is also the power of God for salvation of the society. A millennialism. This prophetic system rejects the idea of a thousand year of blessing. Like post-millennialists, they spiritualize Old Testament prophecies and see them as representation of present blessing. Not to be understood literally. Christ is currently working out his salvation purpose. He will judge the world and welcome his saints when he comes again. Now, pre-millennialism itself has some variances within it. All pre-millennialists believe in the rapture. That is, Christians will be raptured, that is snatched away and caught up, Greek word hapazo, but they differ on the timing of the rapture. You have three schools of interpretation under pre-millennialism. Now, I'm not putting them in order of truthfulness. No, I'm just putting them like that. Pre-tribulation, known as pre-trib. In this view, rapture occurs before, and I've highlighted before, before the Great Tribulation period, which will last seven years, which begins at the appearing of the Antichrist. So in this view, the Antichrist appears, tribulation started, the church is raptured just before the, that period. There is a typo in the second one, 
it's a pre-tribulation again, but it's post-tribulation. I've just put it there. Sorry about that. It's a, can you see that? Post, it's not pre, it's not another pre, it's post-tribulation. In bracket, known as post-trib. In this view, rapture occurs after the great tribulation, which begins at the appearing of the Antichrist. So believers go through the, the seven years tribulation period, and at the end, Christ comes. And in this view, they are quite keen to advocate and emphasize the need for perseverance. Perseverance, Because if Christ will come at the end of the tribulation, and the saints have to go through that period, then they need to learn perseverance. And they're quoting some passage in scripture such as, now, Revelation 3.10, you know, because you've kept the word of perseverance, I will keep you in the hour of trial, etc. Then you have mid-tribulation, known as mid-trib. In this view, rapture occurs in the middle of the great tribulation, which begins at the appearing of Christ. Brothers and sisters, the difference is before, after, in the middle. Should that really divide the church? Honestly. Should this really divide the church? Yet see what's happening. Before, after, in the middle. And there is war everywhere. You're wrong. I'm right. You're wrong. I'm right. It's me. I'm not coming in your church. You post. You pray. You problems. What do we do? Do we throw the prophecy? Do we get intimidated? You see, we can teach. We can teach these things, as you can see, easily. We can, by God's grace, without fear, by just presenting the truth, and let everyone make up his mind, and compare with the Bible which one makes sense by the Holy Spirit. Okay, I think that's it with views. Thank you very much, Brother Ola. So, coming back to our text, the missing dimension in John's life was the revelation of the identity and the person of Jesus Christ in the fullness of his glory. Ah, this is the same John who has laid his head on the Lord, who had even seen the Lord being transfigured. He saw that. He touched. He saw. He heard. He ate with him. He was even charged to comfort Mary. That's John, the apostle of love, as he's known. Now, John sees Jesus Christ in his glory. What happened then? Let's just read something. No, we're not turning to that. But it's in uh, Revelation 1, verse 13 to 18. It describes what John saw and what happened next. What happened next? He fell at Jesus' feet as dead. The same John? Sees Jesus Christ in his glory, 
and falls at his feet as dead. If the book of Revelation reveals the missing dimension in the great Apostle John's understanding of the person of Jesus Christ, what can we say about ourselves? Do we think we are better than John? We have a, a clear and better understanding of the person and personality and identity of Jesus Christ? What do you think about yourself? What do I think about my understanding and appreciation of the greatness of Jesus Christ? What is the missing dimension in my spiritual life and fellowship with God and yours? Well, I didn't warn him, but I'm going to just quote him because uh, I have to quote him. I think it's... Uh, uh, Brother Gerard, whenever he prays, he said, Lord, help us to see you as you are. Help us to see so that we can worship you as we should. That is true. <laughs> How we desperately need God to reveal to us the reality of the person of Jesus Christ in the fullness of his glory. How we desperately need Jesus Christ to lay his hand on us and say to us, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. How we desperately need to realize and understand that Jesus Christ died, but is now alive forevermore. How we must fall at his feet as dead in order for his life to be manifest and affect the newness of life unto his glory. We are called to decrease and Christ to increase. That his life be manifest. That we may live the newness of life earnestly. That we may grow in the knowledge of Christ. Very important that we grow in the knowledge of Christ. And we see that throughout the, the epistles, the desire, the deep desire of Paul to have people understanding and growing in the knowledge of Christ and be established in the faith rather than being busy with uh, petty conflict and uh, power hunger and things like that. No. To know Christ and the power of his resurrection should be our goal. The starting point in studying the book of Revelation should not be to promote controversy or to win the argument about differing views on prophetic interpretations. At the same time, servant of God should not be intimidated to teach from this book because of sharp controversy around it and the fear of contradiction and objection. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear this book of prophecy. We are encouraged. We should not be intimidated because of some scholars have said things. Now, the Holy Spirit is there to teach us all things. The Berean could just pack up and go home because Paul has spoken. No. Scrutiny. 
is needed. Remember the antidote, the corrective response to any form of godliness, to mere religion and spiritual imposture, is to consent to wholesome word of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accord with godliness. Not just form of godliness, but true godliness. I would say godly godliness of God. Every teaching must exalt Jesus Christ and teach his righteousness and teach his fear and teach sanctification and holiness and establish the believers in the blessed hope, the parousia, the blessed hope of the coming of Jesus Christ. Steadily. In 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God be, may be equipped. Now I like this word, this, the last bit. And thoroughly equipped. Thoroughly equipped unto every good work. You see, what is the end result of the word of God? What is the end result of me standing here for one hour to talk? Is to equip the believers that we should all be thoroughly equipped for what? Unto the work of God. That's the reason why I was telling you that every one of us is a servant of God. We read the Bible, we pray, everything we do is to be useful vessels in the hand of God. Because Christ said, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to each one of you according to his work. We are expected to work. We are expected to serve the Lord. Do you know that before the Roman Empire, the believers in the early church, there was no weekends for rest. People just work, 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 work. Until the Roman Empire came with the, the idea of uh, you know, a day off and Sunday, etc., and the weekend, etc. People were working all the time. They had to travel very long distance just to come back home with one or two verses. Sometimes to pay money for the scribe to write for them. They didn't have the Bible. How many versions of the Bible do you have on your mobile phone and at home? Believers of old had to travel distances to go back home with one or two verses which they had to memorize. In fact, it's been said that they could in one congregation together reproduce a quote of the Old Testament by memory when they put together their knowledge. There was investment in time in studying the word of God and memorizing. The Bible says, from my lip, I can say, de mes lèvres j'enumère. What's the word in English? From my lip, I, I say all the words, all, all the sentences of your words, etc. There is, there, there is a word. Okay. Let me not be a false prophet. Let's go in, a, let's go in a Psalm 119. At least I can remember. 
and establish what it is. No, that's not the one. That's not the one. That's not the one. That's not the one. I'm gonna I'm gonna thirteen. Thirteen. One one nine verse thirteen. With my lips I have declared all the judgment of your mouth. That's the one I'm looking for. With my lips I have declared. In French he say de mes lèvres j'énumère. I'm reciting. It means I've memorized. There is an idea of memorizing scriptures. And we can quote them. We can teach them. We can use them. We can apply them because we've memorized them. The psalmist say, from my lip I have declared. J'énumère. I recite. That's what I meant. But the word of God is given in order to prepare us unto the work of the ministry. You say, intellectual and bookish academic knowledge can be dry, though needed when profitable, but can be dried when not mixed with faith and the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Bible says, the letter kills. The Spirit gives life. Jesus Christ said, the word that I've declared to you are spirit and that's what the word of God is supposed to do in us. Transform us, prepare us, equip us, cause the growth. The same truth is echoed for us in Ephesians chapter 4. Should we turn to Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians chapter 4, and we're reading from verse 11 to 16. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 to 16. And he himself, that's Jesus Christ, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. There you are. For the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a perfect man. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children. Tossed to and fro. And carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supply according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This is a responsibility for each one of us. Each part do its share in the edifying and growth of the body. 
Each one of us has a role to play. God wants the church to grow and to be edified. Brothers and sisters, we are not here to play. Certainly not you. Not me. I'm not here to play. You not either. None of us. We have so many respectable people here. Important people are sitting here. And coming day after day, week after week, and because they love Christ, because they want to grow in him, because they want to see him and live with him eternally. We're not a bunch of adventurous people. We're not a bunch of failed people who have nothing else to do. Now, Blessed be the Lord for your life and your perseverance. God is faithful. He will keep us. Therefore, the church must be kept holy. We must seek sanctification from God and his holiness. The church must be kept Worthy of Jesus Christ. The church is not a playground. No. We don't come in the church to play. No. Those who tried to do so in the olden times, some of them were stricken by God. I'm referring to cases such as Ananiah and Sapphira wanted to play games in the house of God. The church in that day learned the hard way that God is not mocked. God is to be feared in his house. If we want jokes, there is a place for jokes. There are theaters and cinemas and circus for jokes. The house of God is the household of God. Is the house of prayer. Is the church which God has purchased by his own blood. No preferences. No favorites. No partiality. No. God must take preeminence in his house. Every part in the body must do its share. In order to cause growth of the body for it self-edification. The Bible says the church, the body edified, edifies itself in love. We don't need marketing techniques. No, we don't need that. The body, through its members, the believers, the body edifies itself. Through ministries and gifts the Lord has imparted by the Holy Spirit, put together they're working toward the building of the temple of God, the dwelling place of God in spirit. That's the house of God. It's the place where the Holy Spirit rules to the glory of Jesus. Jesus is exalted. The Holy Spirit takes things from Jesus and teaches us and reminds us to the glory of the Father, the house of the Paul told Timothy, if I delay, you should know how to conduct in the house of the Lord, which is the ground and the pillar of truth. 
the house of the Lord is not a place to pray. No. The, ha- the house of the Lord is not a place to impose my will. No. Everyone must decrease. Only Christ must increase. So, the purpose of all the ministries is to equip the saints, not just furnish the intellectual curiosity. No. To equip them for the work of the ministry. To edify the body of Christ. To work toward unity of faith. To teach the knowledge of the Son of God. So that we should be able to measure, though we can't, but at least we should be in that spiritual disposition of appreciating the greatness of Jesus Christ. We are told that people should be taught to the measure, to be able to measure the stature of the fullness of Christ. Christ must be exalted. The purpose of God-given ministry is to equip the saints. Have you noticed that I go around that about four times? Because we are children of God. We were born again. Then we grow. And then we grow. As believers, we are called to grow unto maturity in understanding the things of God. And that should be reflected in the way we're serving Him. We are all servants of God. Because Christ is coming quickly with rewards to give to each one according to His work. Well, we should not be spectators like in a stadium, seeing the 20, 22 players playing and we just then acclaiming and being happy, emotional. No. We have to be actors on the ground. Each one according to the measure of grace the Lord has imparted to him. We should not be Christians for Sunday only. Do you know what? Let me talk about this church. In order for us to be here this morning, singing, preaching, you praying, giving offerings and everything we do, a lot of work goes into these two hours throughout the week. A lot of work goes into this for your equipping. So as I said last week, Everyone is responsible for what he is hearing and receiving. And I say people are free to reject. I'm not listening to him. I don't want to listen to that. That's fine. But we're just teaching what the Bible asks us to do. That people should be equipped. So, we need toward the end. Revelation 1 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice the title. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The unveiling of Jesus' glory. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The purpose of the book is to reveal 
the greatness of Jesus Christ and his plan for us because the time is near and we are privileged to be a group sitting together and reading and edifying ourselves in these things is a privilege because these things are foolishness for God's haters. Do not turn to it. I'm quoting for you. In Matthew 16, verse 13 to 15, the Lord asked the same question to the disciple about himself from two different perspectives. Same question. Matthew 16, 13 to 15. In verse 13, he asked the disciple, Who do men say that I am? Listen to the confusing answers. John, some say you are John the Baptist, some say you are Elijah, some say you are Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Any? Confusing us. See, the disciples are asked, who do people say I am? Well, because of what they've seen you doing. Maybe one of the prophets, one of the good man, you know, etc. Okay, verse 15. But who do you say I am? You, who do you say I am? Answer, verse 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Reaction from the Lord, verse 17. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And this is consistent with Revelation 1.1, Revelation which the Father gave for people to know Jesus Christ and his plan. But Peter had a revelation from the Father, from heaven, about who Jesus is. And we are expected and supposed, all of us, to be very clear about who Jesus is and not to be good. We're still at the stage of disputing whether Jesus is God. That was the first month when we became Christian. Oh, who is Jesus God? But not now. Not only is written, but the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. Do you know in Revelation 22, verse 6, God sent his angel to testify things that were to come. And in verse 16, I, Jesus, sent my angel. Verse 6, God sent. Verse 16, I, Jesus, is all about Jesus. Jesus Christ said, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And so we believe and preach the crucified Christ. Some people deny that Christ never died. Islam say he was too good. You know, he was maybe taken away. Judah was crucified in his place. Jesus was too good. You know, that sounds very flattering, isn't it? Now, we preach and believe in the crucified. Not my words. He say in the revelation, Behold, I was dead, but now I am alive. So should we check, test, confront 
the word of man with what Jesus, especially in his glorified appearing. We should be steadfast, established, rooted, founded, built up in the word of God and his knowledge. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He died, but now is alive forevermore. He holds the key of the Hades and of death. To the church of Ephesus, he is the one who sustains his servant and work in his church. To the church of Smyrna, he is the first and the last who died, but is now alive forevermore. And to the church of Pergamos or Pergamum, Jesus Christ is he who has the sharp two-edged sword, that's his word. To the church of Thyatira, he is the son of God who has eye like flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. To the church of Sardis, Jesus Christ is he who has the seven spirit of God, that is the fullness and perfect spirit, and the seven stars. To the church of Philadelphia, Jesus Christ is the holy, the true, who opened door, no one shut, who shut, no one opened. To the church of Laodicea, he is the amen, faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, revealing to his church. What would we say? Who is Jesus in this church? What would God say? What would be our qualification as a group? Who is Jesus in this place? Amen. Jesus is King of Kings. In Revelation 19, when he comes back, he has a great hope. He fights. Out of his mouth, his sword, two-edged sword comes. Do you think he's going to be in a boxing ring with the Antichrist? That's what some people think. No. He will destroy the Antichrist by the brightness of his appearing. The brightness of his appearing. Jesus Christ the Almighty. It's written that on his sight, he's written his name. King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ. I told you the other day that queen, the queen, our queen, was kneeling down. And someone said to me when I saw that, I said, surely Jesus is the king of kings. And the Lord of lords. Before him every knee shall bow. Of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. In conclusion, if the revelation of Jesus Christ is an encouragement to you and I, if the things I've been talking about this morning do not make you sad, it's the word of God. Spurgeon was teaching in such things. He looked at the congregation and he was discouraged. And he said, when we talk about Christ, headship, he said, let your face shine like the sun in the fullness of its brightness. But when we talk about Satan, your usual face will do. We talk about Christ coming. 
this produce hope, stir up joy in us. All the light affliction of this present time are but passing. One day we will live with Christ. On that day, there will be no more death, no sorrow, no pain. My American friend always say, I look forward to that body. When Christ comes. May the Lord help us to join the Apostle Paul and confess the words from 2 Timothy 1.12. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him. Have you committed your life to Christ? Do you trust that he is faithful to keep your life until that day and to change you into a perfect person in his likeness and live with him forever in a place where there's no pain, there's no sickness, there's no corona? May the Lord bless you as you consider these things, if you will. Let's pray.